Does anyone here know what was going on 400 years ago? 400 years ago. Europeans were just beginning to colonize the Western Hemisphere. 400 years ago, there was no use of electricity. 400 years ago, there was no telescope. 400 years ago, people were not aware of Newton's laws. 400 years ago, there was no United States of America. Standing where we are today, there appears even to be a massive chasm from the world of even 20 years ago, from the world of 50 years ago, and from the world of 100 years ago. So from our perspective, we know how much change can happen in 400 years, which makes it stunning that for 400 years, Israel was in bondage to Egypt. 400 years of enforced stagnancy. And finally, after 400 years, there is this great and powerful deliverance accompanied by cataclysmic events of the like which the world had never seen. What is also stunning is that what took 400 years, what they had waited for for that long, it took a matter of days for them to take it for granted. Hearing stories of ungratefulness can often stir within us a sense of self-righteousness, a sense of superiority, self-serving comparison. We are tempted when we read the stories of Israel in the wilderness of their ridiculous complaints and their desire even to go back to Egypt. We are tempted to observe their ungratefulness and their forgiveness and conclude that we would be no way capable of making that same mistake. Indeed, when we think of ourselves beyond forgetting what God has done for us, we underestimate the subtleties of sin in this present evil age. But this is the same story throughout history. Throughout history, people have forgotten who God is. Throughout history, it has been a Romans 1 world. People have attributed to the creature what belongs to the creator. This happens in so many ways. It happens even in ways less overt than in an event like worshiping the golden calf. Forgetting who God is, is what was happening in Galatia. Paul writes to churches that were turning away from the God who delivered them. Indeed, the greatness of God and the salvation he accomplished on their behalf serves to heighten their offense. And it's analogous to God constantly calling Israel back to himself. And what does he base that claim in? He says, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Here, Paul is writing to those who are getting ready to turn from the one who delivered them, not from the bondage of Egypt, but from the bondage of sin. He is reminding them, persuading them, wooing them, urging them to remain on the course of the grace of Christ in which God called them. 
and not to go back to what they were saved from. The crux of Paul's plea to the Galatians is the gospel of grace. Namely, that forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God are not matters of human achievement. They are matters of a divine gift. Now, Paul's words in these verses may appear a bit abrasive, but they ultimately come from a loving and pastoral concern. Sometimes we need tough love. He desires grace for these people. He sees the magnificence of salvation that God has accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ. And he begs the question, how could you go another way? So with that, we read our text again this morning. Galatians 1, verses 1 to 10. You follow along as I read. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The main point from these verses that I would like us to get this morning is that we must always remember that peace with God only comes through the God-ordained gospel of grace with nothing added and nothing subtracted. I'll repeat that one more time. The main point of these verses, we must always remember that peace with God only comes through the God-ordained gospel of grace with nothing added and nothing subtracted. We'll develop this in three points. The first, looking through at verses one to five, we stand on the basis of grace. Secondly, verses six to seven, we veer from the opposite of grace. And finally, verses eight to 10, we live out the implications of grace. Our first point, we stand on the basis of grace. Now, when approaching any passage of Scripture, any book of the Bible, it's necessary to get some background information. Why is that? We seek to find what the text meant to its original readers. We forget that this is a letter written to real people. And what we want to find is the author's original intent 
doing this by reading it in its grammatical context and in its historical context and in the context which it is in the Bible. Because the Holy Spirit inspired this text, because the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write it, we know that the Spirit uses this word still to apply it to our lives. This word is living and active, even in its original meaning. Isn't that wonderful? That we have an objective word from God. So in finding the original intent of the author, it is important that we recognize simply the, what kind of document Paul was seeking to write here. And it's simple enough. He's writing an epistle or a letter. And knowing that, we see that letters in the first century Greco-Roman world followed certain patterns and customs. We have the same today. How do you write your letters if you still do? Or how do you write emails? We have customs that we follow. So indeed, the first custom we find in these verses is a greeting. And unlike us, when we, we identify the recipient first, they identified the sender first. So Paul begins with identifying himself, the sender. Then he identifies the recipients. And then he gives some sort of salutation. And that's going to come starting in, in verse uh, 3. So let's, let's look at the sender. The sender, obviously enough, is Paul. Now, Paul will give some biographical information later in this chapter. But what's important to know now, perhaps as a background to who Paul is, was that he wasn't always necessarily warm to Christians. Paul was a heavy persecutor of the church. I mean, he was a lead persecutor of the church, overseeing the murder of Christians, including uh, Stephen in Acts 8. But... We know that Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, on the road for, to Paul to persecute even more Christians. And it is here that Jesus saved Paul and called Paul to be an apostle. And this is something that Paul even relays in verse 1. He designates himself as an apostle, which literally means one who is sent. But it takes on a meaning that is greater than this. When Paul identifies himself as an apostle, he is setting himself on par with the original 12 apostles. But unlike his other letters, where Paul identifies himself this way, Paul immediately delves into a defense of his apostleship. He says, not, through, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, this reflects the attacks from the false teachers of Galatia. What's going on in these cities? The false teachers argued that Paul's apostleship depended on the apostleship of the apostles in Jerusalem, that he was subject to them, and that his teaching was also subject to them, and that his teaching was different from what they taught. And Paul argues that, no, this is not the case. We preach the same gospel. So how does he defend his apostleship here? Well, he goes to the source. He explains that the source of his apostleship is not man, but the resurrected Christ and God the Father. Later in this section, he will defend that his gospel is not from man, but from God and Christ. And even in verse 2, he explains that he's not some rogue preacher going out on his own. He says, the brothers that are with me 
write this to you. He's not writing this alone. There are others who believe this gospel that he is preaching. Thus, the sender, Paul, writes with the authority of one who is an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. And Ephesians 2.20 says, Upon him, that cornerstone, is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, the physical office of apostle has ceased. And we see evidence of this even in the book of Acts, when James, one of the original apostles, is martyred. And there's no evidence of him being replaced. So, what we have in the Bible, then, is an encapsulation of the prophetic and apostolic authority. That means that Jesus' authority in the church is not expressed in a person, but in the scriptures. So, the sender of this is the Apostle Paul, the apostle whose source of his apostleship is God and the resurrected Christ. Who is he writing to? He says so plainly enough in verse 2 that he writes to the churches of Galatia. Now, the background of Acts chapters 13 and 14 help us to identify who these churches were. Indeed, these churches were in the southern part of the region of Galatia. And Galatia is in modern-day Turkey, or what was known then as Asia Minor. So these were cities that had churches which Paul and Barnabas established on their first missionary journey. Cities such as Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, and Lystra. Now, as we will see going forward, these young churches were threatened by outside false teachers. And we'll unfold this more as the letter goes on. So it is Paul, the sender, and he is writing to the recipient, the churches of Galatia, young churches that he established himself. Now, what is his desire for these churches? We go then to his salutation. And he wants two things for the churches of Galatia. Two things. You could see them plainly enough in the text. He says grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now what is grace? Grace, as many of you have heard, is God's unmerited favor. But it is also his transforming power to live a new life. The word for grace is rooted in the Hebrew words for grace and steadfast love. Grace reflects God's loyalty and his forgiveness of sins. We see this expressed in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7, when God reveals to Moses uh, his, his back. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Grace, God's unmerited favor, rooted in his love. But he also wants peace for the Galatians. Peace or shalom with God is a result of God's grace, of God's love. A right standing, a right relationship with God, peace with him, is a result of his grace. So, Paul is writing to the Galatians and wants grace and peace for them. How are grace and peace accomplished? Well, just as Paul's apostleship did not come from men, 
Neither does grace and peace come from men, but they are divine gifts. He says they come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. On what basis is peace with God found? How does God do this? It is the grace of the gospel of Christ. How does God do this? We must not speed past these words in verse 4. Indeed, we, we can so often approach Scripture in such a way that we just read it for facts. We read it for head knowledge. In our faith of inspiration of the Bible that the Holy Spirit even inspired the greetings of these letters and that he has something for us here. And something, and something that is here in verse 4 is just is beautiful. And look at verse 4, the very first three words. How did God and Jesus accomplish grace? What does this grace mean? Well, it means that Jesus gave himself. That is the grace. Jesus gave himself. What is, I challenge you, what, what possible greater gift could be than the incarnate Son of God? the agent of creation. There, the, there is nothing as valuable in our created universe than the incarnate Son of God in his own life. And he gave that. That is his grace. Why did he do it? What did this accomplish? Oh, the text gets even sweeter here. He gave himself for our sins. For our sins, for my sins, for your sins, for Paul's sins, for the Galatians' sins. He gave himself. The great reformer Martin Luther says, So vicious is sin that the only sacrifice of Christ could atone for it. But it doesn't end here. He gave himself, not just for the forgiveness of our sins, but to deliver us from the present evil age. See that Paul says that this evil age is present. It continues. And we see evidence of this all around us every single day. Oh, brothers and sisters, but a new age has dawned in the resurrection of Christ. The chains of sin and death bound by evil are broken in us. We walk as free men and women toward the promised hope of eternity with Christ. And we are already freed. But we have yet to experience the full hope of what awaits us. He gave himself. This is his grace. He gave it so that we may have forgiveness of sins and deliverance from this present evil age. Paul wants grace and peace for the Galatians. This comes from God and this is how God accomplished it. This is that old, old story. So all this, friends, the plan of salvation, the gospel of grace, Paul says, is according to the will of God the Father. Indeed, salvation is a triune act, planned and willed by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit. Paul wants grace and peace for the Galatians. And there is no other basis for them than the cross of Christ. So, take the work of a farmer. The work of a farmer reminds me of a speech from 
that was played during one of the most memorable Super Bowl commercials a couple years ago. It was a Dodge Ram commercial. And they played um, a speech from our old radio broadcaster. His name was Paul Harvey. The speech is called God Made a Farmer. And it opens, he says, on the eighth, and on the eighth day, God looked down and on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. The speech is beautifully poetic, and it rightly champions the hard and honorable work of a father, uh, of a farmer. Indeed, I went um, to a wedding yesterday in Amish country, going through all these back roads, and at one point, I was stopped because a farmer was herding his cattle across the street. Uh, and, and it's just amazing to see how hard these guys work without modern-day equipment. However, this speech gets it backwards. God may have made man to till the land, but in no way is God dependent on the farmer. The farmer is dependent on God. We're reminded simply even this speech acknowledges it, that the farmer was created by God. And more than that, toil and sweat as the farmer might, if there is no fertile soil, if there is no sunshine, if there is no rain, there will be no crops. But it's the same with salvation, friends. It is the same with peace with God. If there is no provision of grace, if there is no eternal plan of God, if there is no perfect obedience of Jesus, if there is no substitutionary atonement, if there is no victorious resurrection, if there is no gift of faith wrought by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, then there is no fruit of peace with God, no matter how much we try. The soil of our heart is dead. It's entrapped in darkness. It is God that must burst forth to bring light and life. And light and life is found in Jesus Christ. He is the basis of grace and peace. He is the basis of peace with God. It is a divine gift. If grace wasn't a gift, it would no longer be grace. So in light of the basis of our salvation, of our peace with God, I have two questions for us. The first is that have we lost our wonder at God's great provision? Have we lost our wonder at God's great provision? We lose our wonder when we forget our hopelessness outside of God. Indeed, brothers and sisters, if we were even the slightest of capable to save ourselves, then Christ gave himself the greatest possible gift, and he did that for nothing. Oh, friends, but God in his grace has not left us in despair. He has provided. He has done what we could not do. So lift up your droopy heads because grace has come and his name is Jesus. Do not peer into the gospel recounted in verse four without the doxology of verse five, saying glory be to God forever and ever, amen. Grace is here. Peace with God is here. Have we lost our wonder at God's great provision? Oh, let us seek to stir that up. Secondly, have we lost sight of our greatest needs? We remind ourselves, what does Paul want for the Galatians? He wants grace 
and peace? Do we see those things as our greatest needs in our lives? When we realize our greatest needs, we are daily humbled and dependent, knowing that they are only from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we realize our greatest needs of grace and peace, we are excited and joyful and we rest, knowing that grace and peace are accomplished and secure in Jesus. When we realize our greatest needs of grace and peace, we are propelled to pray for these needs for others. And we are propelled to point them to the one who provides these needs, to the sole basis of meeting these needs. Have we lost sight of what our greatest needs are? Let us stir ourselves up to remind ourselves of those. So, knowing the sole basis of grace explains Paul's shift in tone in verse 6. In all of his letters to other churches, Paul offers a thanksgiving for those to whom he is writing, but not in this one. Instead, Paul levies a rebuke. He's marking the dire situation to which he is addressing. So this is our second point. We veer from the opposite of grace. Now, what is Paul's tone here in verse 6? It's important to notice Paul's tone if we're going to get at the original meaning of the text. Paul's tone, he spills it out plainly. He says he is astonished. He is genuinely surprised. And he is chagrined that those who have the true basis of grace are tempted to exchange it for a counterfeit. He is astonished, surprised, chagrined. How do we explain this feeling from Paul? Well, indeed, Paul kind of zooms in and gives reasons why he is astonished. First, he says, of the speed at which this happened. As we will see from the events relayed in chapter 2 and comparing that to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Paul, Paul writes this letter maybe only after a year he visited these churches. They are so quickly deserting him who called them in the grace of Christ. The speed at which this happened. It reminds us again of the golden calf incident. It's analogous to Israel in the wilderness. It was only heightened by how fast they did it. If constructing the golden calf were not enough, they did it quickly. Listen to verse 8 of Exodus 32. God says they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Their speed in which the Galatians were turning. But it's not just this. Paul zooms in further. He says, who you are turning from. I'm astonished at who you're turning from. The one who has called you in the grace of Christ. God's favor was one in Jesus. It is on that basis that they rely on their salvation and nothing else. God called them to continue in this and they weren't. They were looking back. They were veering. But if, if this isn't just enough, it brings us to the final factor that zooms in on how great their offense was is what they were turning to. It is a different gospel, Paul says. And a different gospel from the gospel of grace, Paul knows, is no gospel at all. What happened was that agitators from the outside came and seduced them with distorted teaching. This was the teaching of the Judaizers, a group whose teaching will be unfolded in the rest of the letter. But for now, 
It is important to know that they proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Isn't that how humbling that is? They seemed orthodox at that level. They seemed that they were right. But they added something to it. They added something to Jesus. They said entrance into the people of God required following the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law. And this most basically included circumcision. That men were required to be circumcised in order to come into the people of God. And they were to follow the rest of the Old Testament law. They were binding them where Christ has set them free, adding to the gospel. Paul is saying that leaning on these works for salvation is deserting the God who called them in the grace of Christ. In the grace of Christ's finished work. And so we remember that our, the basis of grace and peace with God is not what we do, but faith in what Christ has done. So we must not veer from this. Yet our natural selves make it so easy to veer from the gospel of grace. We have the the tendency to desire praise and credit. Paul says in Romans, we often think ourselves higher than we ought. But credit and praise belong to God. It's not that we aren't responsible to follow Christ in obedience, but we recognize that even good works and obedience are ultimately fruits of the salvation that Christ has won on our behalf. But it is so easy to veer, to veer away from grace. So going back again to the work of the farmer, we're going to talk about plowing the land. And you don't even need to be a farmer to know this. If you've ever mowed the lawn, you know this. If you have ever driven a car, you know this. When my dad first taught me Uh, how to mow the lawn. We looked at the backyard and he said, pick out a spot straight from you and look at it and follow it so that you'll walk straight. So what happens when you turn to the side? You begin to walk the other way. You begin to veer when you're distracted. This happens to me all the time when I'm driving down Big Creek Parkway because I've driven down this road countless times. And so I know everything that is on it. And so whenever I see something new, I'm automatically distracted by it. And then I start to veer from off-center. I'm a good driver, I promise. (laughs) In describing what it takes to follow him, Jesus said in Luke 9, 62, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is what the Galatians were doing. They have grace right in front of them. And Paul's Paul's saying, you're you're looking back. You're veering off center. You're going away from grace. Why Don't do this. Why would you do this? They were looking back to the Old Testament law and it was causing them to lose sight of Christ. So in bringing this text to us, we have to bring this text to us. Because if we don't bring this text to us, we haven't properly understood it. And we must ask ourselves, why are we tempted to veer? Why are we tempted to veer? We empathize with the line we sung from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. That last verse says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's a reminder that we are in the already not yet world. 
We are delivered from our sins, but we are not yet sinless. We are positionally perfect in Christ, but we are not yet perfected. This reality ought to humble us, to drive us to pray, to pray to God acknowledging our struggle to look to other things besides Jesus for life. And we ask for God's grace to help us keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Knowing our tendency to veer. The second question we ask ourselves is a practical one is what causes us to veer from the gospel of grace? Now, there are just countless examples, but I want to give a few of them this morning. The first is cultural relevance. Cultural relevance causes us to veer from the gospel of grace. And in reality, cultural relevance is just a newly packaged worldliness. Instead of finding rest in the fact that we have approval from God, a strive toward cultural relevance will have us running an endless pursuit never finding lasting and secure acceptance from the world. And it's not that we aren't culturally sensitive, but obsessing over being culturally relevant causes us to veer from grace. It gives us another basis of peace with God. We can be caused to veer from grace by political causes. We remind ourselves that we are not saved by our stance on social issues. While we are concerned, yes, with being good citizens, we are concerned, yes, with being biblically faithful in our politics. We remember what is eternal and what is central. Politics are necessary in this world. God ordained government. But politics will not save us. Jesus will. We can be veered from the gospel of grace by pragmatism. Pragmatism is the close cousin of cultural relevance. And it basically comes down to valuing what works as what is best. What works as what is best. Now, we don't want to swing too far in the other direction and be overly traditionalistic with no regard for biblical wisdom or prudence. But pragmatism leads to self-centeredness. Instead of valuing Jesus, pragmatism causes us to value self-help tips. Indeed, improving our lives without the gospel is futile, and it veers us from the sole basis of grace. So we know our tendency to veer, and we are practical in knowing the many distractors that seek to pull us away from grace and take us off-center. And the sobering reality is that these examples that cause us to veer from the centrality of the gospel are prevalent in the church. And it was the same with the Galatians. The Judaizers were prevalent in the church. They didn't walk around wearing t-shirts that say, hey, I'm a heretic, I'm going to lead you away from Jesus. No, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So knowing our tendency... And knowing the many things that seek to pull us away, we must be vigilant, friends, to be centered on grace and centered on the gospel. So if we know that Jesus is the only basis of grace, the only basis of peace with God, and if we know that we are to steer clear of what would turn us from him, 
then we realize that the gospel is the most important cause in our lives. This brings us to our third point. We live out the implications of grace. And it boils down to committing to the exclusivity of grace. Grace and grace alone. So Paul opens verse 8 with pretty strong language. And he offers a hypothetical situation. He says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. What is Paul communicating here? He's saying how you judge a gospel, how you judge teaching is based on its content, not on the credentials of the messenger. So we bring that to ourselves. If I, if, if I am a New York Times bestseller list, if someone has a multitude of de- degrees, if someone has a megachurch, it doesn't matter about any of those things. If they preach something besides the gospel of grace, then Paul says, let them be accursed. And he even includes himself. It's just stunning. There's no way he is advancing his own agenda. He prizes the gospel. And he'll repeat that in verse 10. He is writing for their sake that they only listen to the gospel of grace because it is the only road to life and peace with God. He says, even if Paul or an angel preached something different than that, they shouldn't listen to it. And this tells us, friends, that pastors and all Christians submit to God's message. We are under God's words. We do not stand above it. Here again, I quote Martin Luther, who loved the book of Galatians. He said, we are not the masters, judges, or arbiters, but witnesses, disciples, and confessors of the scriptures. Whether we be the Pope, Luther, Augustine, Paul, or an angel from heaven. It is the content of the gospel of grace, and we stand under that. We do not divert it, no matter how great we may be. And what happens when we do divert? What happens when there is a contrary gospel? Well, Paul says, let them be accursed. Anathema. In verse 9, he tells of a situation that's a lot less hypothetical. Indeed, if you look closely, he changes the tense of the verb he uses. He no no longer says, if anyone should preach. He says, if anyone is preaching. It's like a backwards way. It's like, "This, this is happening. This is happening in your churches. If this is happening, let him be accursed. Do not listen to them. He isn't just saying, let them be kicked out of the church. He's literally saying, their teaching leads to hell. If Paul knows this, what other tone could he have? The teaching of the Judaizers wasn't inconsequential. It wasn't just a fluffy addition to the gospel. It wasn't harmless. It was a teaching that led to death. How could Paul be a people pleaser then? As the false teachers asserted. He's calling people heretics. And verse 10 concludes this section as Paul essentially saying, if I'm a people pleaser, then I'm doing a terrible job. 
Not only does he condemn these false teachers, but he suffers endless bouts of persecution. Enduring whipping from nine lashes, enduring imprisonment, enduring being stoned. Well, the false teachers may come back at Paul and say, why did you have Timothy circumcised? Why do you write what you do about meat sacrificed to idols? He seemed to be willing to observe the ceremonial law. But the agitators missed the point. Paul did not observe the ceremonial law on occasion as a way to say it is necessary for salvation, but no, as a means to prize the gospel, to remove stumbling blocks for weaker people, so that at the end of the day, people would be offended by Jesus and nothing else. Making the path of grace as clear as we possibly can. Paul's total focus is to please his new master which means committing to the gospel and nothing else, regardless of what men think. So the sole basis of grace means that Christians go to the only cure for the disease of sin. As we know from the medical world, all treatments will not lead to the same cure. If we are to be cured from the disease of sin, the great physician must do it. The medicine he uses is not the merits of the sick, but the merits of himself. He exchanges his perfect health for ours. He lets the disease of sin run its course on himself. That we may be healed. We are compelled again to think of the words of an old hymn and ask, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He is the one cure. And if this be the only cure, friends, we are to commit to it. Committing to the gospel means that we know it. How especially important is this in light of the reality of verses 6 and 7 that we are tempted to veer and that there are many things that seek to pull us away. We have to know it. Pastors and leaders of churches must commit to equipping people to know the gospel. They preach and teach on the basis of the overarching biblical narrative. That God existed in eternity. That he is the creator God who created the heavens and the earth and man. That man rebelled against God and has since launched a rebellion that has stretched from the end of history. But God in his loving kindness and mercy has sought out man to bring him back to himself. And this plan culminates in the gospel of Jesus, the incarnation of God the Son, who lived a perfect life, who died a substitutionary death, and rose again victorious. And now those who by faith believe in the Son of God are reconciled to God. Their sins are forgiven. They have the righteous standing before God in Christ's righteousness. And they look forward to the promise of Christ culminating his work and making all things new in the new creation. This is the gospel that we stand on. This is the gospel that we preach. We commit to it. Individual Christians also must know this gospel. Paul writes to churches in this letter would have been read in churches. So when the world tempts us to look at ourselves, we commit to Christ. What could we do, brothers and sisters, 
that would make us right before a holy God? What could we do? The Bible says that the person who has broken even one aspect of the law has broken all of it. The Bible also says that our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. We need a new righteousness. We need a substitute. And his name is Jesus. If there is one cure, one basis of grace, then we remain committed to it regardless of what man thinks, regardless of what others think, the opinion of others. And we remind ourselves that exclusivity of grace is boundless mercy. It is unspeakable mercy that God has provided any way of salvation. And you know how he did this? He gave himself. For those who charged God with being unfair, he gave himself. He made a way. For those who charge God being unfair, he invites all people to this way. Regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of rich or poor, he invites all people to this way. The hardened criminal and the self-righteous Pharisee. He invites to this way. Exclusivity of grace is boundless mercy. Nonetheless, the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Even when we remove all the stumbling blocks we can, even when we plead and show people God's mercy, Jesus will still offend the world. But because of grace, we are freed from seeking the approval of others. Because friends, we have approval from God. We preach the cure. Indeed, it is unloving not to preach the cure. It is unloving to stare at a world who is sick and dead and have the cure ourselves and keep it to ourselves. That is unloving. And what do we have to lose if rejection comes? Friends, we have approval from God. If we know we are cured, if we know we have peace with God, then we must ourselves not fear seeking help to rid ourselves of the remnants of our disease. We need to rest in God's grace and with his help kill the sin disease that remains in us. We are here this morning because we know that we are sick in need of a great physician. It is good to admit, to admit that we are not okay, acknowledging the reality of God's salvation. And if we know this reality, if we have this cure, then let us help one another. Let us be gracious with, with one another as God has been gracious to us. Let us treat sin as it is, warning one another. This is what God saved you from. Helping one another, stirring one another to good works, to follow Jesus, the one way of grace. God has given us one another that we may continually turn back to his grace, and treat sin for what it is. So brothers and sisters, remember the one basis of grace, God's gift in his son, Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, that he may deliver us from the present evil age. Know the reality that we are tempted to veer from this one basis of grace. Know the reality 
that there are many things that seek to pull us away and commit to it regardless of what men think. So I close by asking, do you forget? Do you forget that Jesus gave himself for your sin, that you would have peace with God? If you forget, remember that old, old story. When distractors come that would pull you away from looking to Jesus for peace with God, remember the grace of the gospel. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, remember the grace of the gospel. When the world spits in your face and rejects you, remember the grace of the gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, you are boundless in mercy. Show us, God, this week how much you have given us. Show us your great provision and let it drive us to our knees in thankfulness of what you have done for our behalf. That you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What greater gift is there, God? Why would we turn anywhere but from this grace? Remind us of this because, God, we are prone to wander. Lord, we need your grace to help us remember to stay on this path of life. Oh, Lord, would you do this for your glory to help us to turn our eyes upon the author and finisher of our faith. It is in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.